Good morning, everyone. Didn't know if I'd make it this morning. But praise the Lord. Thank you for those who were praying for me. Been under the weather all week. Got a cough drop in the mouth, and I may have to pop another one, but we'll make it through. I've been enjoying this service, just the delight of knowing Jesus Christ and doing that together has been a blessing. I almost think that Brian saw my notes and unfolded a few of them already, so I'm not sure, but I'll, I'll, I'll get through them. Uh, for you, this is an aside for you young preachers who are aspiring preachers. Um, for 45, 50 years, I've been an outline guy, and um, it worked. Sometimes I veered off into bunny trails and rabbit holes, and so I've been trying the manuscript, and uh, I suggest to you guys, give it a try uh, when you come up here, and it's, it's really worth it because it, it keeps you away from those bunny trails. So we'll see how it goes this morning. Uh, let's read Galatians chapter 2. We'll read the whole text. I'm going to camp out on one verse, Galatians 2 and 20. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who act effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised. They had only asked us to rem uh, remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager, eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined with him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
We are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also found, been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these, your words. They are holy, righteous, and true. Uh, Put them into our hearts. Help us to be permeated by these words. This day, this hour, this moment. And that you might unfold for us what it means to be crucified with your son. To be identified with him. And we pray, Lord, for each person here. That you would meet them where they are. If they don't know you that you would open their minds to the, the wide spectrum of the knowledge of the Holy One, of you and your Son, Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us who know you, Lord, just fill us all up to the fullness of God, as Paul prayed in Ephesians. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And again, one more thing. Thank you, Tim. Where's Tim? Thank you for covering my Sunday school class, brother. Sorry I missed it, but I didn't want to be in a closed room coughing, so. I'm thankful, as always, to stand in a pulpit on the Lord's Day. It's always a privilege to do so, and that is not a cliche. Besides sharing the gospel with someone and seeing them come to Christ, there is no other activity that I would rather be carrying out than speaking with God's people about God's truth in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Last week, Pete gave us the capstone to the capstone, a sermon, which is now a seven-part series concerning relationships, reconciliation, restoration, and preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Thanks, Pete, if you're watching or if you're going to listen sometime in the future. That was a blessing. That sermon, though, was like the whole series for me. I don't know if you were listening, but it was like, God, you sent this man to speak just because I needed to hear these things. Did you get a feeling of that during the, week, or the weeks that unfolded? I hope we do that every week. Especially last week for me. Pride and arrogance, my number one nemesis. And there were several times during the series 
in the other six weeks in which I had to repent, literally say, God, I repent for things that Brian had mentioned from various scripture passages. Now, these, these guys, Pete and Brian, they, they don't know what's in our minds. They don't know what's in our hearts. But that's the power of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Reaching down, taking the words of the feeble creature standing before you and filling you with thoughts from him. And that's my prayer today, that God would continue to speak to you. Now, the interesting thing for me was that I had gone through some of this reconciliation seeking in the past couple of years. At one point, it took about eight months to finally have a session with two brothers I needed to make peace with. And it happened. And afterwards, it was stated, we should have done that eight months ago. And believe me, that eight months was excruciating. But after all was said and done, there was peace. And our meeting was fruitful. And I'm good with those brothers till this day. But it was not easy. It was not perfect. It took some diligence, persistence, and passion. And that was needed to help carry out the principle found in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And I think that's the message we heard, and hopefully you're applying that in the years to come, not just the months. You see, the responsibility does rest with us as individuals, and that sometimes can be hard to carry out. Perhaps you were overwhelmed by it all. I remember at times listening in those six, seven weeks, and, and yes, feeling a little bit overwhelmed. How do I take action? When do I take, what do I do? Pause. Hopefully you weren't yawning and wondering what was coming after all this messy stuff. You know what the verse before verse 18 says? It says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. So take action if need be. Make things right so far as it depends on you and trust God with the results because he is the God of peace. He is the author of peace. He is the place where peace is to be found. And more specifically, Christ is our peace. And peace is to be found in the shadow of the cross. Now, I want you to come alive here. Children, I want you to enter into this. How many crosses can you find in this sanctuary? You'll be surprised. Count them out, children. Go ahead. Adults, too. Five? Five? Anyone get six? All right, you got six. Seven? Yeah, that's true. If you count all those technically as crosses, that's eh, a certain kind of a cross. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just go with the straight ones, all right? We got one and we got two. There's, there's one over there, right, in the embroidery? There's two behind me. Yeah, there's one over in the middle of that stained glass. Did anyone get this one on the flag? Ah, oh, so maybe seven. 
Oh, yeah, there's two back there. So there's more than I thought even. Okay, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Peace is found in the shadow of the cross. Let's get to our text, Galatians 2 and 20. It is rare that I would take one verse and preach on it. Only able preachers like Spurgeon could do that. And if you read his uh, sermons, that's what he, he sticks with that one verse. But he goes all over the place, and I'm going to be all over the place today. So I'm going to be in tune with Spurgeon. This verse is so rich and full of truths that strengthen us, guide us, and comfort us. So about three or four months ago, the Lord gave me two messages. One of them I delivered on December 31st of this year. Tim was supposed to preach, and he got sick, so I covered his back, and today he covered mine. Thank you, brother. Uh, that one, I, I said, was about worship, and it was 20 years in the making. Uh, this one is just a few months old. God gives me something to say every once in a while, so that's a good thing. And even though this sermon is not the capstone to the capstone to the capstone, it is indirectly related to the previous seven messages, as you've already seen. But that is because the whole Bible is so interconnected, one could probably say indirect connection to almost any message with another message. So let's get to the task at hand, and that is understanding and applying Galatians 2 and 20. Have you memorized this verse? It's a good one to memorize. Remember, if you memorize one verse a month, that's 12 verses in a year, and in 10 years, you have 120 verses down. Wow, that's a lot of verses. So start working. Uh, I don't know what the text is in John, but you can start with Jesus wept. Two words, but it's a verse. Just start with that and build from there. Children, you ought to be doing it. When you're young, you ought to be doing it. Uh, Aaron and I are, are memorizing uh, uh, Colossians 3.12. Let's see. See how far I've got. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and gentleness Patience, no, humility, I missed. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. And the NASB, which I memorized, is so stodgy. It's just, uh, it's hard to memorize sometimes, but I work through it. Um, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so should you also. And beyond all of this, put on a heart of love, and I'm working on that part, but yeah. Work on it. I'm 70 years old. I'm, I'm memorizing still, and you know, it's, it's not easy for an old person. So youngins, do it now. I, I may have, I don't know, I've got 100 at least, maybe 200, maybe 300. Memorized the whole book of Ephesians once when I was in Bible school. Lived on the 10th floor, and I'd, I'd memorize, instead of taking the elevator, I'd go up and down the stairs. And that's when I memorized. Yeah, it was powerful. I still know the book. It still blesses me. I'm going to quote from it today. It's still a blessing. So whatever you can do, Jesus wept. Start with that one and go on. Love is the greatest, whatever it takes. All right. Rabbit hole, sorry. <laughs> Three thoughts. 
from Galatians 2 and 20. First of all, our identity. I have been crucified with Christ. Two, our re reality. It is no longer I who live. That's phase one. But then we'll get to phase two. But the life that I live now in the flesh, that's reality, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And three, our security. He who loved us and delivered himself up for us. So let's get going. Identity. This flows out of the first part of the verse, I've been crucified with Christ. The King James, perhaps better than all, I think gets the perfect tense of the Greek right. And Peter got into the Greek, so I'll get into the Greek only for a moment and very passingly. But this Greek tense, the perfect, there are several uh, tenses in the Greek that are, are uh, the past tense. This one says, it happened, but there are continuing results. And in fact, the King James tries to do that in, in three words. I am crucified with Christ. The literal should be, if you look at the Amplified, I have been with the result that I still am crucified with Christ. That is our identification. It is our standing. It is our position. And it is a grand one at that. Now, this country, maybe the world, has had an identity crisis, haven't they? Severe. It's been happening for a while. It's not just the last five, ten years. Uh, I think during the 60s, when I was growing up, it started, especially when we think of Engel versus Vital. And I, I get a little history lesson for you. That I can't get away from that. I'm sorry. Uh, Engel versus Fatal in 1962 was the New York State Region prayer. And that uh, New York State Region's prayer was this. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee. We beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. And in 1962, the Supreme Court said, with only one dissenting vote, that that prayer was against the First Amendment. Uh, I, I could take you down a bunny trail and rabbit hole, and I won't, uh, as to what selective incorporation is and how the 14th Amendment made the Bill of Rights applicable to the states, and now that's how they did that judicially. I don't agree with their decision, but... We had an identity crisis. It was contrary to what was really happening in the country at the time. In the 50s, when I was born, a year after 1954, um, Congress and Eisenhower put in the pledge under God. And believe it or not, a Democrat from Michigan, Representative Louis Rabot, um, introduced legislation to add that phrase. He argued that adding the phrase would give students a deeper understanding of the real meaning of patriotism, while adding that it could also provide a bulwark against communism. And so there was this red scare, and there was a problem, and all. Some of you are historians, and some of you could care less. But in 1954, in February, President Eisenhower went to the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and heard a sermon that greatly influenced him. 
And that sermon was preached by a guy named Doherty, and he said, to admit the words under God in the Pledge of Allegiance is to admit, omit the definitive factor in the American way of life. And he discounted, listen to this, he discounted the right of atheists to object, arguing that an atheist American is a contradiction in terms. Because if you deny the Christian ethic, you fall short of the American ideal of life. Um, two years later, Eisenhower had In God We Trust um, became the United States motto. It had not appeared on paper currency or stamps before the 1950s. Now, I'm not trying to be political here. Um, my point is, that was our identity, at least for some people. And it really goes back to our founding. Here are some quotes from George Washington. I am sure there was never a people who had more reason to acknowledge a divine interposition in their affairs than those of the United States, and I should be pained to believe that they have forgotten that agency, which was so often manifested during a revolution, and that they failed to consider the omnipotence of that God who is alone able to protect them. A letter to Marquis de Lafayette, August 15, 1787, just three short ones. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. That was his first inaugural address, April 30th, 1789. It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. That was a thanksgiving proclamation October 3rd, 1789. And lastly, reason, listen to this, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. And that was from his farewell address in 1796. I'm not trying to be political. My point is that people have lost their sense of identity. Or the opposite has happened in that their identity is so narrow and so twisted that they forget they are human beings. We are all part of the same family, as Paul reminds us in Acts 17, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of the habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grow for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets say, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. I'm an American and proud to be, but it is not my ultimate identity. I love Ethiopians and Russians and a Finnish people. My wife's half Finn, so I do love Finnish people. My identity, though, is in Jesus Christ. My citizenship is in heaven, and that is where my allegiance resides. Now, Paul goes further on in this identity statement. I have been crucified with Christ. And you see, it's the cross. That's where I reside. 
It is how I'm aligned. Now let's try to unpack some of the layers that we see in that cross. In that statement, I have been crucified with Christ. First of all, it has to do with punishment. Only the enemies of the state, that is Rome, would be executed in such a manner. And I'm not going to talk about the gruesomeness of, of what Jesus went through and the asphyxiation that eventually happens uh, because you can't continue to hang there. It's just, you, you lose your breath. But Jesus, who was executed, was innocent of any wrongdoing. He was found guilty and sentenced to death. But we knew, we know, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our place, as Brian said, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, enemies, opposed to God, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What an amazing, astonishing event. What happened 2,000 years ago. The cross of Calvary is the center of all history. It isn't just some icon that people wear around their neck. And, and brothers wear it. James White, good brother, Theologian, teacher, I listen to his po podcast every once in a while. I see him with a cross, you know. I, I, I wouldn't. I revere the second commandment in a different way than he does, perhaps. And, and, you know, but whatever. The cross, it's an astonishing event. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. It's the whole center of our universe in terms of time. God is timeless. He's eternal. But he entered time, and he came in the fullness of time. And so when you and I say, I have been crucified with Christ, here's what that means. That 2,000 years ago when he hung our Savior our friend, our maker, we were crucified with him. Let, let that sink in. When he hung, we were there. Mysterious, I don't fully understand it, miraculous, but clear as crystal that if you're a believer, if you follow Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you did what Brother Brian said, you, you received the gift that he gave on that cross. If you're his, you hung there with him. That's, that's astounding. Let me go on. This identification with Christ not only saves us, but it makes us a new person, makes us a new people. 
The broken relationship between Adam and God can be restored in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. If this doesn't send you into the stratosphere, somehow blow your mind, or at least be moved in some way, shape, or form, you need to reevaluate. Brothers and sisters, you need to ask yourself, if this is just ho-hum material to you, if the table that we just received from, the bread and the fruit of the vine did not stir you this morning, then it's time to reboot and ask, who am I? Am I Christ? Have I been crucified with Christ? Is my identity totally, absolutely, and astonishingly wrapped up in Him? Sorry for all the adverbs. But our God is lavish. He has given us so much in this identity that we need to be careful not to take our Christian standing lightly or casually or even more egregious, flippantly. Our faith is something to be treasured because God is our most treasured prize. Jesus Christ, His Son, making that possible. So when I say I have been crucified with Christ, we should be shaken. It should burn into the very core of our being that God would do something. The God of the universe, the God who made all things, the God who is eternal, who, who didn't need us, would give His Son. I have two of them. Both of them were in the military. One, both of them were overseas. Some were in Iraq. One was on a ship. One was on land. They would have died. I would have cried. I'd still be weeping. God gave his son. We call him Jesus. What love. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself because that's the last part of the message, all right? <clears throat> Got to move on. I haven't even kept time. Anyone keeping time? How long have I gone? I could go for two hours on this one, but I'm not, I, we, we got a, a meal and a meeting, and we got we to get going. All right, let's, let's move on to the second thought, and that is reality. That's our identification. We are, our identity is in Christ, in the cross, in the great work of God that he did for us. Now, our reality is two phases, and I'll do it quickly. It's found in the next part. It is no longer I who live. Now, this is strange. If you just took that, and you just took that literally, it's like, no, I do live. What, what are you saying, Paul? And he says in the next phrase, but the life I live now in the flesh, so he recognizes phase two, but he's emphasizing phase one. The reality is that we have a new life. Part of our identity is that our old man, our old woman, has been nailed to the cross. This is what baptism symbolizes, death, burial, and resurrection. They all go together. Positionally, we do not have to follow our old habits, our old ways, or the way of the world. Jesus has dealt with it with a death blow. But you say, 
What? Then why do I sin? Why do I mess up? Hold on. That's phase two. I'll get to it real quick. But we want to make sure we got phase one down. Our identity with Christ is that he took his life, his death, and took a blow to our sin nature, to our old person, and put it to death positionally. That's hard to conceive of. Young people may not get it, but it's positionally. Here's Hebrews 2. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's our possibility. And if you don't get the possibility correct, you will be frustrated when you get to the probability. The probability is you'll sin. The probability is you'll mess up because we're in the flesh. We still have this old creature hanging on. And we have difficulties at times with it. But let's think of that possibility, the potential that we have because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Romans chapter 6, check it out. I can't read it. I don't have time. The last part of it says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free. And that's what Jesus meant, didn't he? When the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. That's the possible hallelujah. The longer I live, the more I see my sin. This is a paradox. The more my sin is revealed, the little, little, littler parts that I missed maybe years ago. Oh, that sin, brother, and you better attend to it. And yet, the more I live, the more I see the Savior living in me, conquering that sin, allowing me to be free from sin's shackles. And so your experience as a believer through the years should be progressive sanctification. Step by step, sometimes three steps forward, two steps backwards, two steps forward, three steps backward, whichever way it goes, but progressive. And I'm beginning to see that in the last five years, just the last five years, just like, like I, wow, Lord, you're making these bumps. Hallelujah. Now, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So just when you say two weeks ago to my wife, Wow, we haven't been sick all winter. <laughs> it happens. It must be my body's sense that it's coming when I say that, because whenever I say it, it does come. Paradox. I see more sin in my life, but I see less sin because of the Savior being displayed. And that's our quest. That's our goal. That's what we're after. <clears throat> now let's get real. Phase two, the life which we now live in the flesh, it's difficult. It's arduous. Yeah, we sin. John says if we say we don't sin, we're a liar. The Bible's always so transparent about our condition. <laughs> the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. 
who can cure it? The Lord knows the heart. It's Jeremiah 17, 9. But Paul give us, gives us the antidote to our heart's desire to wander. You know the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. The antidote is in the text. I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, where pride and arrogance has sometimes caused me to stumble when I'm trusting in my own self, my own abilities, my own so-called super spiritual powers, the fall is ahead, right? But when I'm trusting in Him, leaning on Him, and I love getting sick, believe it or not. This is going to be weird, but I'm weird, so, you know, just take it for what it's worth. I love getting sick. Because there's no better place to be totally dependent on our Heavenly Father than to be laying on a bed, <laughs> misery and chilled and all the rest, and saying, Father, like David, it's good that I'm afflicted. Now, I said to Brian, I like the fact that he doesn't do it all the time. <laughs> and for some people, their immune system is that way, so bummer, I, I, I feel your pain. But it's a good place to be because that's where we all need to be, trusting, leaning, relying on the only one who has what we need to live life. I said these sermons, the last seven and this one are connected, and I think they are. Love God, love your neighbor, love your brothers and sisters by faith, in faith, with faith. Put to death your sinful passions, your weaknesses and wants that are not in conformity to your new identity. That's love. Because when we sin, it is as R.C. Sproul used to, to put it, a matter of cosmic rebellion. And we don't have a clue what ramifications our sin has on other people, even those closest to us. Wow, that's overwhelming. But not if we remember it is Christ in us. And by faith, we take the steps to do what Paul told us in, in Philippians 2. Verse 13, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right. And that segues my message into the last point, security. So we have identity in the cross of Christ. We have our reality. Phase two, troublesome, flesh, always dragging us down. Phase one, possibility, Jesus put to death that flesh. Hallelujah. In the midst of all that, we have security. I don't have time to dwell on this for long, but it's wrapped up in the last part of our verse. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, we hear this as little kids. Well, I didn't because of my Roman Catholic background, but you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Beautiful little song for kids and for grown-ups. Um, we hear... John 3.16, for God so loved the world. A brother preached that on that text this summer. But I want to tell you the Galatians 
love goes beyond John 3.16 love. It's a deep love. It's a John 17 love. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one. That's the Father and the Son talking. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That you loved them even as you loved me. This is broader than John 3.16 love. This is a deep love that you are loved as a believer by the Father just like He loves the Son. That's astounding to me. This is before the foundation of the world kind of love. In fact, Jesus says it, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And we have Paul tell us in Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us in him for the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to adoption. Now, I don't know how you interpret those, that text. It doesn't matter to me. It, it, you can't skirt around it. That is before the foundation of the world love. This is the love that God ma mapped out in eternity when the Father, the Son, and the Spirit decided to create and then redeem and then restore part of humanity. The plan is spoken about in Ephesians 3 and Romans 1 through 11. It's deep and complex and intricate, but at the same time, simple. You messed up. I've come to cover you. Cover you with the blood of my son. Cover you with the robes of righteousness. Cover you with my Holy Spirit who will bring you new life. And then... Myself, that's the Father he's talking. And my Son and my Spirit, we will reside within you until I bring a new heavens and a new earth and then I'll be with you in a way that you have never experienced. No sun, no moon. I'll be right there in your midst. God among you. And you and I, if we're believers, we get to receive and experience that kind of love. There's a pre preacher who just passed a few years ago who once said this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's how much the Father loves us. That's how much the Son loves us. That's how much the Spirit loves us. They didn't just talk about it in eternity past. They carried it out. That's the center of it all. That's where we identify ourselves and who we identify ourselves with. May God grant us his mercy to see that cross in a new and fresh way this day, this week, 
and the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, these feeble words have not gotten close to the depths of your love. But Lord, I pray your love would come upon us in a special way today as we eat together and as we fellowship together afterwards. And Father, we pray that you would show us how to reach others with this love, this great love that you have shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.